2 Samuel 1.1, I'm just going to read the first 12 verses. We'll talk about more, but it says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. That's the city where he was living. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? He's asking, how did the war, the battle with the Philistines go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said, Who are you? I answered him, I'm, a, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord, to, to David. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword." You and I are at a bit of a disadvantage when we read this passage because it reads like kind of a historical record of an ancient king that died. But I want to let you know, this is a massive turning point in the life of David, and it was also a, a, a terribly difficult time for the people of Israel. This is the death of a king in a war. And as, as awful as King Saul was to David, um, most of the people were unaware of the level of Saul's depravity. And in a certain sense, Israel had experienced some measure of blessing under Saul's kingship. But he's died. King Saul is dead. And David is in this little bit of a purgatory between being the fugitive king and now he is the appointed king because the wicked king has now fallen. Let me frame up this context. I want y'all to stay with me here because I know this tends to start in slow gear, but this speaks to who we are as a people. And guys, I, I really wanna go after your heart. You may be 20 years old in the room or younger. You might be 80 years old in the room or older. And I will tell you this, I think probably baby boomers and older have a better grip on biblical masculinity than my generation, Gen X and younger. And the reason why is because the cultural fog about what it means to be a man, a male, um, didn't really start blowing in hard until the 60s, 70s, and 80s, late 60s, into the 70s, 80s. But then it completely blew apart when political correctness became the, the mantra of the nation. And then when you started getting into the late 2010s, all of a sudden we have this phrase called toxic masculinity. Everybody in the room has heard it, but nobody can define it exactly like the person next to them because this is what it's actually saying. This is what the vibe of that phrase toxic masculinity is. It is this, being masculine at all is toxic. That's the message in our culture. And so while we've got this one extreme of toxic masculinity, and listen, there is a version, or should I say a perversion of masculinity that is toxic. The, the idea that men ought to be misogynist, sexually fulfilling their appetites, that women are there for their gratification, or the suppression of women, or the relegation of women to a lesser than status, call it the caveman vibe or whatever you want to call it, that is toxic. 
But that's not really what our culture deems as toxic. Now, anything that remotely smacks of testosterone is poisonous. And so what we have on the other extreme is this culturally misshapen version of a man, which is that he is supposed to be constantly sweet, as sensitive as any woman. He's to be intuitive, kind, and passive. Any aggression, that's toxic masculinity. Any confidence, that's threatening. Any drive to conquer, that can't happen because that's risky. And so what we're doing, and I'm raising a almost 15-year-old boy now, I'm raising him and I'm recognizing how different what he's hearing about being a man is than when I was 15. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I help my son never enter into the caveman syndrome, but never bow to the sensitive ponytail guy syndrome? Sorry if you've got a ponytail. It was just a phrase from a movie back in the day. What is manhood? I think from King David's life in this passage, we can see both strength and humility. And gentlemen and ladies that happen to be around men, I want you to know that God wants men to have strength and humility. Humility keeps strength from becoming sinful. Strength keeps humility from becoming passive. And so let's look and see how David portrays this in the scene surrounding the death of Saul. I want to start with a sensitive part, okay? Because David was shed more blood than anybody in the Old Testament. David was the consummate warrior, but he's also the poet and the songwriter and the musician and the worship leader. So, I mean, to me, if I'm a woman, I'm like, if I'm a single woman, I'm praying, God, give me a David. I want that kind of dude. Now, I'm not a woman and I'm not praying that, so don't sign me up for counseling. But the reality is, is, is David was sensitive. And look at the sensitivity of a saddened heart. Look, watch him get sad. Look at this. So in verse number one, we see very simply, it's a season of great conflict. And it's described this way, after the death of Saul. When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, he remained two days in Ziklag, just very quickly so we can enter into the scene. So David has been fighting a battle against the Amalekites and his people, Israel, whom David is kind of divorced from at this point in his life, they've been fighting the Philistines on a completely different territory. So King Saul is leading the army of Israel against the Philistines while King David is fighting a different people group called the Amalekites who had taken his wives and burned his city. So David comes back after fighting the Amalekites and he doesn't even know yet. There's no Instagram, there's no uh, media, there's no internet. So this has happened. Saul the king is dead, but David doesn't know yet. So here comes the bad news in verses two through 10. Let me just read verses four and five. So this young Amalekite guy, this young dude shows up into Ziklag and he's all disheveled and he's covered with dirt and David looks at him and says, how did it go? How did the battle that Israel's fighting go? I want you to tell me. And the young Amalekite guy, he says, the people fled from the battle. He's saying Israel's army had to flee and many of the people are fallen and dead and David, King Saul, and your best friend, his son, Jonathan, they're also dead. David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? Now, I want you to understand something. Saul was a terribly wicked man to David. Saul had made David's life for the better part of a decade a living hell, and I don't use that term flippantly. It was terrible. And Jonathan, Saul's son, was David's most loyal and trusted and best friend. They, they, had a, they, they were blood brothers, so to speak. They, they had such a unique bond. And David finds out from an absolute stranger that the king of Israel is dead and David's best friend is dead too. So when we're reading our Bible, it's very important that we just don't read like it's some fable or historical account. David really felt this. If you've ever had that heartbreak of finding out somebody um, deeply special to you is gone, you, you're in a surreal state that doesn't feel normal 
for quite some time. And David is finding out about this from some Amalekite, a member of the people group that David's just been fighting. And this stranger comes in with this story that we're going to break down in a minute, but I just want to give you the scene here. There's wars going on, and now the bad news finds David that Jonathan, his best friend, and Saul, his king, are dead. And it's all coming to David from the mouth of a stranger. And so it results in verses 11 and 12 in this sorrow that finds David. Just let the Bible speak. And guys, I want you to hear this. David took hold of his clothes and tore them. It's an ancient sign of mourning. And so did all of the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted. Why were they doing that? For Saul, for Jonathan, and all the people of the Lord, the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Let me, let me just give you this. All throughout this is an incredible amount of honor that is very rare today. Unfortunately, this is not just male, this is our culture. Honor is a kind of a, a, a fading virtue in our nation. We have turned into people who are addicted to honoring themselves and getting honor for themselves. And so what we're seeing in our, nat- our nation is that people are numb when calamity strikes the nation. And uh, the default thinking for so much of the United States of America is, I'm not real interested in it if it doesn't personally affect me. And for King David, I want you to notice why he was mourning. It's the first thing it says he was mourning, and he ripped his clothes. And we find out that they wept and they fasted all day. He's doing this, yes, for Jonathan, his friend, but the first person listed is not Jonathan, his friend. It's Saul, the king that had been trying to kill him. David was so able to come out of his personal scenario because Saul was a torment to David, but Saul was also God's man to be the king of Israel. And David had lived for a decade saying, I will never put my hand against this guy who is trying to kill me. And he honored King Saul for for all of David's days, all that Saul was alive. David honored King Saul constantly. And so when the news came that King Saul was dead, David didn't stand up and rejoice. Wouldn't it have been tempting to say, hallelujah, Finally, the wicked man is out of the way and now I can take the throne that I've been waiting on. Now is my season. Now is my time. You don't find any of that. David actually entered into the normal practice of mourning and weeping. And what's so amazing to me is it almost sounds like a footnote. The Bible says that David did it first and he's working with hundreds of marauding, bloodthirsty soldiers. But notice that though these men were equipped and capable at war and bloodshed, they had adopted something that they had seen in David, their leader. What was it? It says they also tore their garments and wept all night long. See, they cared about their nation. They cared about their country. They cared about themselves, not just as individuals and families, but they cared about the bigger picture. And I, without, I don't, I don't want to go on a political thing here. That is so, so not my purpose. But I, wanna, I, I do want to say this. Brothers, If we are so wrapped up in what everything going on around us means to us and only us, then I dare say we're not men at all. I dare say we're boys in grown-up bodies. Because part of manhood is a humility that says, it's not about me. It's not about my name. It's not about my reputation. It's not about my opportunity. It's not about my my kudos. It's not about everything revolving around me. Because listen, we're we're a speck of dust. We're beloved by the Lord, but we're a speck of dust. And if what we're looking at around us must constantly orbit around us in our mind, then I would say that we need some of what David had. And David had honor and he had sensitivity and he wasn't afraid to weep over something that was weep-worthy. I would love to say that we, 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 we don't have to choose between being strong and, and having the heart of the Lord and recognizing there's actually some things that are worthy of our tears. There's some things that need to, to reconnect with our heart that's been tenderized by the Lord. Jesus wept. Jesus did not bridle his emotions. We picture Jesus sometimes as walking around and he's just flatlined all the time. But if we carefully study the Bible, you're going to find out that he wept. You're going to find out that he sang. You're going to find out that he got angry. And yet there is the stoicism that has kind of found the American male. And guys, I just want to say this. The goal is not to live unmoved. 
The goal is to live moved for the right things. And so go a little bit further beyond David's sadness, and this is where maybe the guys will be able to kind of grunt a little bit here. So let's, let's give a sanctified grunt if we're going to grunt. So look at the intensity of David's loyal heart. Now remember, David has been hunted by Saul for 10 years, but he's just gotten word from this young guy that Saul is dead, and David had, had heard from the young guy that the young guy said, yeah, I'm actually the one that killed Saul. Now, very quickly here, you can go back to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, and you can read what happened. This young Amalekite lied, saying that he killed King Saul, and the way he framed it up was, Saul was mortally wounded in battle. He happened to ask me to put him out of his misery, and I stepped up and did so in a merciful act, and David, I am the one who is bringing to you the crown that we all know belongs to you and the, the, the kingly uh, ornaments that belong to you. So the young guy is trying to schmooze David a little bit, but he has completely undermined all, all hope for his life. So let's look at it. David shows that he's free from bitterness. Look at this in verse 17. David lamented with his lamentation. That's like saying David wept with weeping. It's, it's just a, an intensity of weeping. He did it over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he, excuse me, I went, I went to the wrong place. Y'all already knew that. Let me go back up. Go back up into verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. First of all, David has grieved after this young man says, I killed Saul. David gets through his grieving, and it's almost like in the midst of his grieving, David starts getting his bearings. He says, wait a minute, what? bring that young guy back over here. Did he, did he actually tell me he's the one that killed Saul? David's been grieving and weeping for most of the day, and he starts getting his thoughts together, and he says, bring that guy back over here. And so the guy tells him, I'm the son of a sojourner. I'm an Amalekite. I love the fact that though David could weep, David also could come out of his weeping, did not entitle himself to stay perpetually morose, perpetually in a puddle of tears. And David recognized, yes, there's a time for weeping, but I also have to act in the capacity that God has assigned me in my life. So this is what I love, guys, and, and forgive me if this sounds like a little bit of a tedious kind of counseling, but gentlemen, yes, there are moments we need to be sensitive, but we actually cannot just fall apart. Now, I have been through some times and some seasons in life and ministry where I felt like I had nothing to offer. Frankly, I went through a, a, an extended period years ago where I believed that I was, I never went to the a counselor for it, I believe I was, I was depressed. I would call it ministerially depressed. And I lived that way for probably more than a year, maybe almost two years. Now, I got up and I went to work. I did all the stuff. I was there for my family. I did all that. But inwardly, I was, I was as dry and dead and, and unmotivated. There were moments where I just wanted God to, to shut it down however he wanted to shut it down. And in, in those moments, I didn't want to do what I was supposed to do in life. But I did because my wife needed me. My children needed me, and the people that I was called to serve needed me. But I'm going to tell you, I learned how to weep hard when nobody was looking, and just by the, just the, the tenacity of relying on the Holy Spirit, there were many, many days where I just survived. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm not proud of those moments at all, but I am so grateful that I didn't give in to the ownership of the blues, the despondency, the depression, and the, the melancholy that had settled in my soul. By the grace of God, I fought to survive. And I want to tell you something, gentlemen. Sometimes that's what faith looks like. Faith isn't always calling down fire on the top of Mount Carmel to destroy the prophets of Baal while you get the victory. Sometimes faith is that you wake up and you do what you have to do because God said he'd be faithful that day. And that's how we win these battles. And David is starting to snap out of it, and he calls that young man over. And then verse 14, this is where you start seeing the strength of the king because an unjust killing took place. Saul was wicked, 
But that never gave this young Amalekite the right to kill him. And David had spent 10 years refusing to kill Saul. So in verse 14, David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's, Lord's anointed? That's a phrase that David had said, I will not do. I will, I, David, will not put my hand against the Lord's anointed Saul. So for 10 years, David refused to enact revenge against the man that was trying to kill him. And this Amalekite, by his own testimony, it was false testimony, but by his own testimony, he says, yeah, I, I put the king out of his misery. And David gets outraged at the right thing. Toxic masculinity wants to neuter the American male. Forgive me if that's offensive to you, but that's what toxic masculinity, the doctrine of toxic masculinity would love to make eunuchs out of all men, to take away their everything that, that fuels what could be healthy manhood. And, and it demands that we be passive. It demands that we shut down the God-given nature that is in most men to conquer, to fight, to, to be proactive, to go after things. That is in the hardwiring of almost every man. And it actually has to be countered in order for it to disappear from a man's life. And typically, most men don't get it yanked away from them in a, excuse me, them in a moment. What happens is men get worn down and eroded over time. It's death by paper cut. And it just whittles them away. It's like sandpaper on the, on the sole of a man. It just gets it to where it's finally smooth and even and rounded, no edge. And that's not God's design for a man. It's not God's design for a man for a man to live angrily and hos in hostility. But we have to learn, brothers, to how to get outraged at the right things. We get mad over stupid stuff, guys. And we, we fail to express righteous anger at things that bring anger to the heart of God. And so we, we squander our anger in self-serving things. Man, confession time. Listen, I'm filled with the Spirit. I pray in tongues all the time. I prophesy. I'm in the Word. But I feel like a lost, darkened pagan when somebody cuts me off in traffic. I, I don't, I mean, it's like, it's like inwardly, it's like nine times out of 10. Outwardly, it's like four times out of 10. And I was with Amy the other day and some lady crossed a solid line to come into my lane and then slammed on her brakes. Now I don't curse anymore, but I do have a horn on my car. I didn't know that horn would go solid for 60 seconds if you just refused to. I was so mad. And then I sat there, and my wife's just awesome. She's just awesome. She's just sitting there going. I'm not looking at her, but I sense it. You know how you can sense it, brothers? I just sense it. She never says a word, and I'm just sitting there. And you know, like 20 minutes later, we're in the restaurant, and I'm still thinking, how did that lady do that, man? I'm thinking, I get mad over stuff that violates my little special little thing. And then I fail to get mad over things that we ought to be outraged about. Now, that's my confession, and I won't put that on you, but I will say this. Not all anger is sinful. The Bible actually commands us to be angry. Be angry, but don't sin. And so there are things that we must be angry about. So David's getting angry because something unjust has happened. And so... David does something that'll make all of us 21st century, Western, nice, neat, polite, turn the other cheek Christians really uncomfortable in verses 15 and 16. So it's my privilege to share this with you. Verse 15, then David called one of the young men, that's one of his soldiers, and said three words, go execute him. Go execute him. Go kill this young Amalekite guy. And the Bible says that the servant struck him down so that he died. And David says to him, apparently, as the guy's dying, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Um, we don't like that because it's not super sensitive ponytail guy. Is that toxic masculinity? Or is that just, in, at least in the context of, you know, ancient um, you know, 
Bronze Age era. That's just justice. It's just justice. And remember, don't, don't, don't forget, David's the man after God's own heart. And so we can't just write it off to David being some unbelieving pagan who just did something horrible here. There's no rebuke from the Lord in it. And this young man had testified formally before King David, who would now be king, testified before him, I killed Saul. And David knew that that was a crime, especially because he's an Amalekite. He's an enemy combatant who just killed the highest ranking, highest appointed figurehead in all of Israel. And David says, you shed blood, your blood will be shed. Now, obviously, for clarity, I'm not encouraging that any of us engage in physical violence or taking law into our own hands. But the principle is there, the principle of justice and holy outrage and the fact that David didn't wait five years shuffling his feet wondering what ought to be done. Let me just say this too. Um, I, th I think one of the things that's got to happen, I, I think so in such context of the church, where, what has happened to decisive men? What, what has happened to the God-given instinct in some men, not, maybe not in all men, but there's gotta be more than what we're seeing, that, that can size up a situation and be pre-filled with the Holy Spirit so they don't got to scramble to figure out what's going on in the moment. But they came into a situation walking in the Spirit. They are discerning it in the Spirit in the situation and can make a decision in the Spirit about what needs to happen. Where are those churchmen gone? Where are they? Let me tell you what's happened. They've been neutered. They've been emasculated. They've been scolded to the point where they now feel like little boys. Their wives scold them sometimes. Yeah, I'll meddle a little bit. The, 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 the people in the culture scold them. Strong and decisive men have been told that's wrong. Everything's got to be diplomacy. Everything's got to be feel good. We all got to get in a hold hand, kumbaya, let's eat some bird seed. Let's strum, strum some, some, some guitars on a nice flowery hillside. Let's sing Michael Row Your Boat Ashore. And then we can all feel good about the decision. Is that really who we want leading us? Is that who we want coming against the enemy on our behalf? And I'm not talking political and military. I'm talking about in the kingdom. We've got apologetic manhood going on in the church and the church is the only one that has the, the, the source of truth about what men are to be. And so listen, I'm gonna tell you something, there's a reason, man, I'm getting way off base, but I'm feeling it right now. There's a reason why scripture says to the husband, I command you love your wife. You know why? Because the, the, the subjective need inside of most women is to be treasured, pursued, and loved. That is what they need. But what does it say to the woman, to the man? It doesn't say, wives love your husband. It says, respect him. Honor him. And through generations of incremental dishonoring of men, men feel immobilized and paralyzed to be the man that God has created them to be. It's not every man, but it's, it's epidemic in the church. The culture's already gone. We've got men apologizing for being men. We've got men apologizing for, and of course some of it's sinful. Of course we, we make amends for sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about for men apologizing for deeds they've done. They're apologetic for being men. And the feminization of the American male has hit the church so hard that now men are reluctant to lead in anything, and that's why 80% of ministry done in churches is done by women. And thank God for you, ladies. Thank God for you. Don't quit. But I'm telling you, it's not just some side issue that men just flaked out. It's that men have been emasculated and they have been reduced to the place where they, they don't know how to lead because the instinct that God gave them to lead is now taboo and wrong and now they have to become sensitive and they have to become, they have to become female. And listen, women are great at being female. Y'all ought to keep just going to do that. Men are terrible at it. I don't know why I'm yelling, but I'm passionate about this. To, to, to now 
the decisiveness that David operates with, we would read this in modern day and we'd be like, I, I think he should have called a committee. I think maybe they could have provided a potluck. They could have talked about it. See, see how the Amalekite was feeling when he killed Saul. Let's just talk to him. And how, can we take a minute? Guys, can we discuss how we feel about that? David looked at it and he knew instinctually that this man had committed a capital crime. And David, in that era, was judge, jury, and he called somebody else to be the executioner. And the trial took about five minutes. The only evidence entered into was this man confessed to killing Saul by his own mouth. He's going to die. That's called intensity. Guys, before moving on, put it back in your prayer life for God to give you back your intensity. Don't fake it. You're not Rambo. You're not the Terminator. You're not John Cena or whoever the latest and greatest tough guy is. Um, but, but you are you. And I'm, tr I'm trying to be polite and I don't want to be crude. If, if the women weren't in the room, I'd be saying some of these things a very different way because it would be a man talking to men. But we got women and children in here. But um, guys, we have to get reacquainted with our spine. Ladies, if you have a man in your life, a husband, a son, a father, a brother, your job is not to nag him down to where he has no idea who he is anymore. It's not a spiritual gift. It's actually a weapon of the enemy. And when he is corrected, scolded, when he is, con and I'm not saying he can never be corrected. What I'm saying is the pattern the pattern that can appear is that everything he's done is critiqued, it is criticized, it is scolded. I'm going to be bold here. You're actually helping Satan destroy the heart of your man. Amy has told me this for years, and occasionally she, I wouldn't call it she gets up in my face. She really doesn't do that. She doesn't have to because, because of the way she has interacted with me, she has my ear. But over 20 plus years of being married, she also knows moments when I'm going to hear her, moments when I won't. And she is so skilled at getting the right word to me when I'm in the right position to hear it. And there's times where she's correcting me. But let me tell you what she told me years ago. She said, Jeff, most of the stuff that would bother me about you, all I do is I talk to God about it. And in her case, she, this is what she said. She said, because I know you'll listen to him even if you won't listen to me. And guys, let me tell you something. You, you carry a part in this. If you'll listen to your, to your Lord and your wife knows that you will, she probably will talk more to God about you than talking to you about you. She'll pour out her complaint to the Lord. The Lord will speak to you about it. And guys, so I'm not just saying, women, you have no right to speak into the lives of your men. Um, but what I am saying is this. I have yet to meet a man who said, I was nagged into Christ-likeness. It was glorious. I'm just saying for all practical purposes, it just doesn't work, so you might as well try something else. I mean, honestly, it's, it's not that it's just demeaning and dishonoring and wrong. It is functionally uh, proven. It just doesn't work. So pick a new tactic, and I will pick a new set of verses to go to right now. So we didn't read verses 17 through 27, but let's go through it because watch what David does. He's going, he, he just executed the bad guy after crying and weeping. Now look at what he does. This is incredible. This is the humility factor. And I call this the depth of David's surrendered heart. Let me take a drink real quick, pardon me. So David proves after all these years of being hunted by Saul that he's free from bitterness. Verse 17 18, it says, David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. What is he talking about? David wrote a song and he called the entire nation to sing it. We'll go over a couple of the lyrics of the song. So David, it's just amazing to me. 
it's not a man crush that I have on David, but it's, it's like right there. It's just, I'm like, how, I want to I be like this guy. What, what, what am I talking about? So he's weeping, he's tearing his garments, he's lamenting because disaster has found his people, and although it's personally going to open a door for David, David's like, it's not about me, man. This is, this is big stuff going on. And then he finds the dude that committed the murder of Saul, and he's kill this guy we're gonna take care of it so it's like one moment he's crying and weeping and the next moment he's like ah and then on, on this moment he's like i gotta write a song who does that there's just i got a song in me right now so he's i mean he's in touch he's feeling something he's like i gotta communicate something I like this because, and women, y'all can say amen to this. You're not going to hurt our feelings. We know it's pretty much true for most of us. Men aren't exactly awesome communicators of how we feel. Like when you say to him, oh, what are you thinking about? What, what's going on in there? And he's like, mm, I got nothing. I, I was thinking about my shoes smelt this morning. And I wonder what the score of the football game is. I mean, that's, that's men at their, that's a little, you know, sarcastic and stereotypical. But, but we don't flow in communication. That's typically not how, now we can grow into that. Ooh, that, that almost works. You may not flow in it, but you can grow in it. Somebody tweet that. Just give me credit. May not flow in communication, but you can grow in it. David flowed. David's just like, oh, just killed a guy cried all morning I got to write a song about Saul because he was he was our king and I got to write a song about David because I mean about Jonathan because I, I really really love Jonathan and so David's free from bitterness but part of being a man being strong is not the same as being hard a lot of men become hard because of things that have happened Bitterness is learned by not just men, but I'll stick with the brothers here. We, we learn to manage bitterness. Men, we compartmentalize stuff. So my wife teaches me this, and it's a familiar phrase. I've told you it before. Women are like spaghetti and men are like waffles. For a man, a waffle, little divots in the waffle none of it one divot doesn't touch another it's separated women it's spaghetti everything touches everything and so uh, when men get hurt and we get bitter we just put it in a divot and we don't visit it we just put that there we're not gonna but it's there and David was so free from bitterness that when the man that had hunted him and would have killed him if he could have, when that man died, David's like, I'm going to write a song to honor him. So here's part of the song. I, I don't have time to read it all, but nine, verses 19 through 25, I took a couple of verses. Here's part of the song. You daughters of Israel. So David's like, I'm writing a song. I want the whole nation to sing it. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. David didn't write a slasher song that talked about how horrible Saul was. David knew that Saul was really, really bad to him. But David said, I'm not going to remember him about his failures to me personally. I'm going to be able to do what Paul would later say, love covers a multitude of sins. And he was able to see beyond the obvious faults of Saul. And when he was going to speak of Saul publicly, he blessed him. Try doing that with those that have wounded you. Try entering into a Holy Spirit-fueled ability to never speak ill of them again. I mean, literally, just choose never to speak ill of them again. And the Holy Spirit will say, I'll bless that. He never blesses us. The Holy Spirit never says amen when we slander somebody. Even if we're saying what we're saying is true, the Holy Spirit never says, I'm so glad you let that out of your mouth. That, that, that's gonna, that, that fuels my fire in you. It just doesn't operate that way. But when you come to a place where somebody across the table from you is baiting you to talk ill of the one that hurt you, 
and they're wanting to get into one of those stone throwing conversations and they're empowering you just to let it out again when you just say hey yeah there was some personal pain there but I'm going to tell you you know here's what I believe God has done that's good through all of this and you consciously start trying to speak as the Lord might speak to that thing I'm going to tell you your life, literally, your life starts getting changed because your heart starts getting changed. So David put it down and wrote a song and called Saul a great king who blessed the women in the land with clothing and ornaments of gold and called him a mighty man who had fallen in battle. Didn't publicize the fact that Saul committed suicide or that Saul hunted David unjustly or that Saul was paranoid and demon-possessed, which all of those things were true. He just... He did what we do at a lot of funerals as pastors. We just try to find the good thing. And it's like, if we're going to talk about something about this deceased person, let's talk about something good. Let's find something good. It doesn't mean you're a liar or you're a counterfeit. It just means you're choosing to speak blessing instead of cursing. And so David retained also his willingness to love. He says, he puts in a line about Jonathan, who is his best friend. Because of this statement, a lot of people think David and Jonathan were engaged in some kind of homosexual love affair. That nothing could be further from the truth. There are a lot of people, and now in a lot of LGBTQ um, aggression, they want to say, see, David, David and Jonathan were gay, and David was the man's af man after God's own heart. Um, I don't have time to go into that, but I'll just tell you very simply, that's nonsense. David said this, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Let me just tell you something very quickly. If David and Jonathan were homosexuals, the last thing David would have done in his day is put it in a song and tell everybody in Israel to sing it. And it's insulting to me as a man for a culture to tell me that I can't have such strong love for a brother of mine without it being sexually uh, perverted. I, I don't receive that. And... I don't have to be loveless to be masculine. I can look my brother in the eye and I can say, I actually love you. Now, most men, we do this. We take the eye out because that's a little too intimate. We don't say, I love you. We say, love you. And by the way, when men do that and they hug, notice when two men hug, they always hit each other. It can't be a man hug unless you go in for the hug and go, boom, boom, pat them on the back a couple of times. And that... That keeps it from anybody questioning what kind of hug that was. I've never hugged a woman like way, going, hey, sister, boom, boom. <laughs> we just do our thing, but I, I, I want to say this. I reserve the right as a man saved by grace who loves people to look another man in the eye and say, I love you. And I refuse to enter into that. I hope they don't think anything. I, I just refuse to do that. So David didn't lose his ability to love. He had had a terrible decade go on. And when it came to an end through the death of Saul, David not only was able to bless Saul, but by expressing his love for Jonathan, we see that David had not lost his love towards other people simply because he had been mistreated by one person. And so we get down to the, to the very end. And I, I will, I'll wrap it up. I appreciate y'all being patient. Here's the humility of David's strengthened heart, and this gets into chapter number two. For the very first time, David is now in a situation since he was anointed king by Samuel at age 16 or 17. For the very first time, David is now free from a kingly opposition coming from Saul. And what is the first thing David does? Because he just got his freedom. It's like getting paroled out of a prison. It's like winning the lottery. It's like David has all the freedom in the world. And the first thing that he does is he gets still in the presence of God. And he gets humble. Guys, I want you to hear me on this. Being a man may include, and it should, the concept of being free to lead, free to be masculine, free to be unapologetically male, but it is never freedom from the lordship of Jesus Christ over your life. And so the freest man and the most masculine man is going to be the man who understands humility and submission to Jesus Christ. So what does it look like? Verses 1 through 3, David inquired of the Lord. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which city shall I go? And he said, go to Hebron. So David went up. Why is that important? Because David's in Ziklag, 
And David now knows that the only opposition to him being on the throne is now deceased. But David doesn't strut in there. He doesn't gather his 800 men and say, come on, we're going straight to the the center of the kingdom. We're going to go into the palace. David stops. And he says, Lord, you've just set me free. What would you have me to do? I love that. He says to God, I'm not going to presume that I know what to do. I'm not going to let my decisiveness turn into disrespect of you. Like, we can be decisive men, and I think we need to be, but we're not decisive independent of the wisdom of God. And so our decisiveness needs to be rooted in wisdom that comes from the Lord. And so David is seeking wisdom. And so David, is said, David says, can I go to one of the cities of Judah? And, and the Lord says, you may. And David doesn't say, okay, I'll pick a city. He goes, could you tell me which city? Which city would you like me to be in? That's preci- precision. And he's being humbly precise or precisely humble. Guys, I just want to say this. I probably should have made this into two messages, but the Lord still wants us to, to not lean on our own understanding. You haven't been so independent of God so long that you can't start tonight submitting yourself to the Lord and saying, Lord, if you're still willing to show me, I commit from this day forward, I'm just going to learn how to obey. And you go humble with God, and then you go humble with your family, and then you go humble with the family of God, and then you go humble. Listen, humility, you say, well, Jeff, I'm not good at humility. Nobody is. Nobody's good at humility. That's why we're commanded, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We're actually good at exalting ourselves. I'm awesome at that. I I can do that without even trying. I have to focus on humbling myself. And when we do, we welcome the blessing of God on us. And so that's what David did. And so what happens? He receives a promotion from God. Ten years in the making. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Stop, stop, stop right there, stop. Did you read that? The men of Judah came and anointed David king. Ten years, living in caves, living in the wilderness, at times ruining his own reputation, losing it over times of isolation in the cave of Adullam where he wrote some of the most sad psalms, and being on the run and not being allowed to enter into his destiny. And that was the context of his entire life from probably age 17 or 18 up until his late 20s. And finally, everything he was promised as a teenager from God, from the prophet of God, and it's just summed up in one sentence. The men of Judah recognized that this was their king. Now there's the other tribes of Israel that it was going to take a while. But for the first time in David's life, he's stepping further into his destiny. When did it happen? After 10 years of patiently enduring and obeying and then after humbling himself when God opened the door for David to move forward into his destiny. I'm not convinced that if David had strutted after Saul died, I'm not convinced that God wouldn't have said, "Uh, you're not ready. It's going to be a little while longer, David, because you still have pride. But by the time David got to this point, he was humble and he could walk through the door of elevation. Uh, I'll give you this and then I'm, I've got two minutes and I'm going to finish. Guys, I, I'm going to, I want you to believe something. Some of you think that you missed your appointment with your purpose and your calling and that it's gone. It's not gone. It's still there, but it's a small door that God's opened and you have to go low to get through it. You have to humble yourself. You didn't miss it. It's not that he took it away. It's that you have to get low in humility to walk through the door that opens up into the room of your purpose and destiny. And David got small. And the next thing you know, Judah's saying, hail the king. So the rest of the passage just um, is not as essential as, as the former part. Can I ask you to stand to your feet? I want us to be a house and a family 
that maintains a commitment to the biblical definitions of masculinity and femininity because our culture is changing those definitions. And our children and grandchildren are very, very confused, and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. We're the only people group on the planet that have certifiable, ironclad, guaranteed truth about what defines a woman and what defines a man. And we have to make sure that we are pushing back on the cultural definitions while holding fast to the biblical definitions. The extreme of the caveman, ridiculous, heartless, abusive, fraudulent, um, masculinity, that's not Bible. But nor is it biblical for any of us to expect a man to be more like a woman in order to be genuine. Ladies, I feel like this is marriage counseling. He's not supposed to be as sensitive as your girlfriends. He's never going to be as intuitive as you are. If, if you want him to know something, tell him. Just tell him. And guys, work a little harder at listening and anticipating and surprise her every now and then by trying to be sensitive and proactively connecting with her before she has to tell you something. But there's no crystal balls in marriages, and especially with the men. The men, your, your man didn't come with a crystal ball where he can look into it and say, I know exactly what she's thinking. <laughs> so can I say this? Give him some grace. Appreciate the way God has made him. The things that you're not thrilled about in him, Talk to the Lord every day about those things. But if you want to change your man, bless him. Bless him. 20 years of nagging didn't work. Try two months of blessing. I promise you, I promise you, there'll be changes. So Father, help us as men and women. Help us just to get small enough to go through the door that you've created for us to walk through. Help the church retain our backbone when it comes to the roles of men and women. Lord, I'm asking you, don't let my future grandkids fall victim because we failed to protect these definitions. I speak blessing in the name of Jesus, over every household, every marriage, every future marriage. I speak the blessings of grace on our homes. And for the single, I speak contentment in your heart to wait on the Lord as he makes you Mr. or Mrs. Right so he can bring you Mr. or Mrs. Right if that's what he wants. In Jesus' name.